Take your Bibles, turn to the book of James, chapter 2. We're continuing our walk through the book of James. We've been looking at it for the last three weeks. We went through three weeks in the first chapter, and we're moving into chapter 2 today. And as we do that, I want to start by asking you a question, and then in a moment I'm going to see if you uh, know some information. I'm going to quiz you a little bit on some uh, something coming up next week, all right? And so um, this is the question I want to ask as we start. I want you to think about it for a minute, and then we'll talk about it. What is the best seat you've ever had? What's the best seat you've ever had? Now, you could take that in a number of ways. For me, when I see that or when I hear that question, the first thing I think about are sporting events, like the best seat I've ever had at a sporting event. All right, Or maybe for you, it's the best seat I've ever had at a performance. You've been to a, a Broadway play or um, you've gone to see your, one of your children or grandchildren perform in a performance and you're able to see them just perfectly. For some of you, when I said that, you were thinking, I wasn't thinking of that kind of thing at all. I was thinking about my lazy boy at home. That's what I was thinking about. It's the best seat I've ever had. So what's the best seat you've ever had, the highest place of honor or best seat you've ever been in? When I was in seminary, so after college, went to seminary, Susan and I got married and went directly to seminary, and uh, I worked for most of the time I was in seminary at a fine arts preschool. Because when you see me, you think fine arts preschool teacher is what you think, right? I was just the guy that came in in the afternoon and watched the kids till their parents picked them up. I didn't do any real fine arts teaching, all right? But I was there, and it was the most exclusive fine arts preschool in Fort Worth. I know you didn't even know they had those sort of things, but they did, all right? And so big-time people would send their kids to this place, and they would use cheap labor from seminary students that didn't know a whole lot better to come in and watch the kids. But one of the benefits of being there is that you would sometimes get surprised with really cool gifts. Every year they would have parents adopt staff members as secret um, Santa kind of thing. And they would just leave gifts for you. And you never knew what it was. But it was always like the nicest clothes I had in my closet for like two years were things left by my secret Santa from kinder plots of fine arts. All right. Well, one day we walked in and it wasn't secret Santa day, but the, the director called me in. And I had a friend that went to union with me that was also at seminary and said, hey, just wanted you to know. One of our um, parents left tickets for tonight's Rangers game. If anybody wants to go, you can have them. And I said, yeah, I'll go. We're cheap seminary students, just Susan and I. She was teaching like we didn't have kids. It was just us. We're living in a 600-square-foot apartment where we could put our feet on the coffee table and touch the TV at the same time. That was the size of our living room. But, yeah, we'll be glad to go. And so we, we had to drive to a gated community to get the tickets and the parking pass. We got it. We drove down there. We went into a garage I didn't even know existed in the rain, underneath the Rangers Stadium. They were playing the Yankees that night. This is back in the heyday of the Yankees back in 2000. Derek Jeter, uh, Bernie Williams, Paul O'Neill, um, Soriano, all these, all these great pitchers. That night, um, David Cohn was pitching, and for the Rangers, they had some of the, I know this is flying over some of your heads, but some of you are getting this, alright? Palmero and Pudge Rodriguez and all of that, alright? And so, we drive into the parking garage, and as we get there, we kinda, there's somebody standing there and tells us to roll down the window, and he says, here are your complimentary programs for the night. Here are the other things that you get for these tickets. And could you please go to um, parking spot C-22? Sure. Can you show us where that is? And I can guarantee you this as we drove through the parking lot. The cheapest car in the whole lot was ours. And it wasn't even close. All right. So then he says when you get there, you'll take an elevator up to the area that will take you to your seat. 
So we get in there, we get in the elevator, and they take us to our seat, and we are two rows from the field at the on-deck circle. I was close enough that I caught one of those T-shirts from the T-shirt just being thrown. I knocked two people over to get it, but I got one, all right? <laughs> That's not really a joke. I didn't knock a couple of <laughs> It was coming our way. I wanted the shirt, all right? And so we sat there and watched that game with Hall of Famers playing, and we were inches away from them. And it were the best seats that I'd ever had. The other day I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool to go to another event like that and have really good seats? You may not know this, but um, next Sunday is my birthday. And I thought, man, I just wonder what it would cost me on my birthday to go to the Super Bowl. You know, I don't know if you all know that Super Bowl is next week. I don't like either one of the teams in there, but it's in Atlanta. It's close. Enough. I could drive after church on Sunday, maybe, right? Get down there. Let me just see. And so now I want to show you because we're going to play a little bit of a guessing game, see if you can understand this. I've got a picture, I think, of the stadium here. All right. And so I'm going to just show you some places in there and see how much you think it costs to sit there for the Super Bowl as of my official research at StubHub this morning. All right. And so if you want to sit, I'll give you the start in section 328 over here in the top corner. All right. And it's actually the top seat in the top corner. That will cost you $2,208.74 per ticket. So it would be a birthday party for one is what that would be. <laughs> right? So I would no hotels. That's driving that day, coming back that night. $2,208.74. And the worst part, Chick-fil-A ain't even open in the stadium on that day. I don't know if y'all say that's a big thing. Well, you're not going to be open for the Super Bowl, all right? So 328. So here's the question. Now I want y'all, I'm going to give you a chance to talk about this, and then we'll, we'll, uh, I'll ask you. What if you wanted to sit in 312? So not up here in the top corner, but here you're still at the highest level, but you're at the 50-yard line, all right? What do you think? Tell somebody around you how much you think that would cost you if you want to do that. All right? Here's my answer, and then we'll go to the next one. Or not the answer. This is what StubHub. You can get... One ticket, not more than one, one ticket for $9,750 right there. All right, anybody, I, don't see anybody, I haven't seen anybody get their phone out and start stubhubbing right now. I haven't seen that. All right. So, I mean, you know, you can see history. The Patriots are there. When are the Patriots ever there? Um, so what if you say, man, I, listen, I just can't sit there. I, I just cannot sit right there. I got to be closer to the action. All right, so 2200 up here, 9750 here. How much do you think it would cost to be in C-127? All right, how much do you got there? Anybody, anybody guess? They're not quite there yet, all right. 42500 42000 per ticket. Hypothetically, you got a family of six? You can buy a house or you can go to the Super Bowl, whichever you prefer. All right? But that's not the most expensive ticket there. Because right above that are these little suites. And one of those suites has one spot available. Right there, center of the field, suites, which means all you can eat food. I mean, that's got to be worth at least 20 or 30 bucks right there, right? All you can eat food. Anybody to tell somebody, what do, you, what do you think, how much for one of these suites right here? 
$25,000 plus the service charge for StubHub. You think they might waive that at that one, right? Now, here's what we expect, though, right? If you paid the most money, where do you expect to sit? In the best seats, right? That's how the world works, whether it's the Super Bowl or whether that's going to a Preds game or whether that's going to a Broadway play. Like, there are tiered pricing and all that stuff. And in that, all those places, you pay a certain amount. You expect to sit with certain privileges. Um, if you do, by the way, if any of you decide this afternoon, you know what? Um, I know people were laughing about it, but, man, I want to go to the Super Bowl for $5,000 a piece, all right? You do get a VIP party if you get through StubHub. So just putting that out there for you all, all right? A $30 party in addition to your 5000 that you spent. But we expect, right, if I spent the most money, that's where I need to sit. So the seats I had with the Rangers. I later found out, I did not know this that when I went, but that the guy whose tickets we were sitting in his seats is the orthopedic surgeon for the Texas Rangers. I was glad nobody broke their leg that night because I wouldn't have known what to do if they'd have said, hey, where's the doctor? Come on out, right? But he paid lots of money for those seats. And as we kind of live our lives, that's what we expect. You pay more money, you get more privileges, better seats. What if the church worked that way? What if on Sunday morning you got to get your seats together, right? And so you had to get online and pay down money, and you got to pick the best seats. Now, we'd have to reverse engineer it because in church, these aren't the best seats, apparently. Right? Nick Bagger's in like the top seat in the house back there, right? I mean, that would be where you'd have to spend all your money in the back. We'd have to re-engineer. The, we can't give these away, but those back there could go for something, right? Well, as crazy as that sounds, that's exactly the same kind of illustration that James uses to show one of the most wicked sins that exist in our heart. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1. We're actually going to start just a couple of verses before that, all right? We're going to start at the end of chapter 1 where we were last week because James 2 is an illustration of James 1. James 1, by the way, I know many of you couldn't get here last week. Some of you were. You are able to get out. Um, but if you weren't here, go back and listen on our YouTube channel or on Vimeo. Find our sermon because this one will make more sense from that one. And just follow along with us, all right, if you miss any week with that. James chapter 1, starting in verse 26, says, If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So James spends the majority of chapter 1 at the end of it talking about being a doer of the word, being someone that does what God calls us to do. Now, not just occasionally, not just sometimes. He uses the noun form of doer to make it really say that we are people that are characterized by doing what God has called us to do. We are characterized by that. And so when he says that, he is telling us at the end, if you can't control your tongue, you're not a doer of the word. If you're somebody that is not able to separate yourself from the word world, then you are not a doer of the world. And if you're not taking care of the most vulnerable in our society, you are not a doer of the word. And then he's going to give a personal illustration. And most people think, and I'm included in that, that what he says here is an incident that as the pastor of a church in Jerusalem, he actually witnessed. That this happened in his church, and he's calling them out. And here's what I'll tell you about James. 
He doesn't pull any punches. He says it straight. And when he's standing before, most people think the book of James is a list of his sermons or part of his sermons. And when he's writing this letter to them, he's reminding them of what's happening. When he's writing this to the Jews out there, he's going to say, if you're treating people as terribly as my church treated these people, then you are sinning. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to leave it there for a second. Because he's saying this. Can you go back? Go. There it is. What he's saying to them is, listen, I love you. He calls them dearly beloved brothers and sisters. But he says to them, don't show favoritism. The word favoritism there means to make a judgment based on a face or external appearances or what they appear to be. He said, because you can't do that and truly be someone holding on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Then he gives this example in the next verse. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there, or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit a sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. That's, by the way, one of my least favorite verses in Scripture. But it doesn't make it less true. That if you kept the entire law, you were perfect, and you made one misstep, you break it all. All means all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you don't commit adultery, but you murder, you are a law breaker. And then he finishes saying this. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. There are some sins in our lives that are just more recognizable. Some sins in our lives that are just more obvious than other sins. Things that people can see. When we get mad and we blow up and we yell at somebody or we use language that's inappropriate, people can hear that. People can see that. People get caught in certain um, reactions or get caught in certain sins. It's just more obvious. But James here, when he gets ready to talk about how we separate ourselves from the world, how we are different than the world because we are followers of Jesus Christ, the first thing he talks about is not an obvious sin. In fact, it is one of the sins that we can hold inside of us. And yet, it is one of the most devastating sins that can live within our soul. One pastor says, It is hard to think of a sin within us that is more wicked and contrary to the will of God than feelings of superiority and condescension from people that are different than us. When we look at someone and because their skin color is different, when we look at someone because, and they dress differently than us, when we look at someone and they didn't go to the right schools or they don't have the right social status or they don't like the right friends or they don't like the right shows or they don't go to the right places, they don't measure up in our mind, we are committing the sin of favoritism and it is devastating to our lives. 
I mean, James pulls no punches here about the sin, right? He calls it sin. He says you are committing sin if you are showing favoritism. He calls the people that do that transgressors. He calls it dishonored. He says they are evil thoughts of people. In fact, he compares it to two other sins, right? What are the two sins that he compares favoritism to? Adultery and murder. Now, on the list of things that people say, you know, that's a really bad sin. I don't know about you, but adultery and murder are pretty high up on the bad sin list. The consequences of those are devastating. And he says that being someone who shows favoritism is on level with that. Now, before we dive into why favoritism is so evil, I just want to say a couple of things that James is not saying here. The first thing he's not saying is that all wealth is wrong. And that's good news for us because as we talk about every November, if you're in this room, there is a high chance that you are in the top 1% to 2% of wealth earners in the world, which means you are wealthy. You may not feel like it. doesn't mean you aren't. In fact, most of us in this room are in the top 1% of the world. 99% of people are more poor than us. So not all wealth is wrong. He's not saying that to be wealthy is to be immoral. He's also not saying that all poverty is good. That just because you're poor that you're okay. What he's saying is that what we have should never influence how we are treated or how we treat other people as followers of Jesus Christ. Now he says the world will do that. I mean, that's his point, right? That's how the world operates. That's how those outside of faith in Jesus Christ operate. They're going to show prejudice. They're going to judge people based on the skin color that they have, on the amount of money that they have, on the social circles they run in, on where they went to school. That's what the world's going to do. But for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, that is not how we are supposed to operate. And he also is not saying that money is the only way that we show favoritism. In our world today, there are all kinds of ways people show favoritism. It's not just money. It is. It's education levels. It's prestige. It's, it's knowing the right people. It's being an influencer. And we live in a world that is so beholden to people that have wealth or status or popularity or influence. So why does James say that favoritism is so bad? What makes it this sin that is on par with adultery and murder. Well, he tells us in this passage a couple of things. First of all, he tells us that favoritism creates discord, creates division. He says, after he gives the illustration that a rich person, and by the way, the rich person there that comes in with a gold ring, is dressed in fine clothes, is not just wealthy, but the gold ring would symbolize some sort of status. And he says, that person comes in, you put him in the place of honor. Now, why would you put somebody that looked like that in a place of honor? Well, in the early church, as in most churches, they're trying to say, we want to be in with the status that you have. We want to be in with the influence we have. We want to be in with the money that you have. And he says, if you tell that person, you sit here in the good place, and then you take the poor person with someone else, he says, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? The idea is, haven't you created division among the body of Christ? The idea here is that in both instances, these are poor person is a follower of Jesus Christ, the rich person is a follower of Jesus Christ, but he says, when you have done that, you have said that one is more important than the other, when in actuality they are the same, and you are creating division. 
over the last couple of weeks at uh, Madison Creek, where my girls go to school, they've had discussions and social studies surrounding Martin Luther King Jr. and the Civil Rights Movement and all that happened with the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday. As I think through that, and as we celebrated that day last week, and as we talk about his legacy, I'm still reminded of his, in his speech, one of the lines that just cuts me to the heart. When he said the most segregated hour in American life is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. And what has happened because of favoritism and racism and because of our looking at someone and making a judgment on them is that we have unnaturally divided the body of Christ. It creates and causes division. In my previous church, I said this in the first service, one of the problems of only being at two churches in 20 years, basically, is I don't have 13 churches that if I say at a previous church, everybody goes, oh, I wonder which church that is. When I say previous church, there's only one, so it wasn't this one, all right? But at a previous church, um, we had a special evangelism emphasis one year. And uh, that was in Ripley, Tennessee. My father-in-law pastored a large church in Jackson, Tennessee, and they had called in this kind of renowned evangelist that was going to come in and do an evangelism program for them. And they had paid for all the travel and everything for him to be there. And so we arranged where on the back end of that, he could come to my small little church in Ripley, and we could have him do the same thing he was doing at the big church in Jackson. And so we're really excited about having him. We've been praying for it. We've been thinking about it. And one of the things that we planned... One of the things that we had planned is that he went to the school on Wednesday and he did a program for the school on Wednesday in Ripley. Ripley's a, a, a school at that time about 750, 800 students in their high school. And he did a program, a mass assembly in front of everybody. And he invited everybody there to our church for Wednesday night. And we had, we're going to have free pizza for anybody that showed up. I mean, we had made an order for pizza weeks in advance because the Domino's in Ripley didn't know that they could handle it. All right. We were counting on a lot of people showing up. And as we got there and he, he presented um, what he was doing, he did a, a kind of a, an awareness, drug awareness program that he had and then invited everybody to the church. If you'd like to hear more of my story, come to the church. And so we started to see people show up on Wednesday night again and again, just started to flow in. And by the time the night was over, our sanctuary in Ripley sat um, about 350 to 400 people. By the time the night was over, we were pulling chairs out and pushing people into places. We had over half of of Ripley High School in our building. Man, it's awesome. But it also led to one of the most difficult conversations of my life. Because the population in Ripley and at Ripley High School is about 55% African American. And the the composition of our group that night was... At least that. And man, I was so fired up because there were kids that didn't have a church home. They would have never stepped foot in our church except for this event that we were having. And they were going to hear the gospel clearly proclaimed to them. I mean, we had many. that The most baptisms in the history of the church for a year came because of that night. So I went out in the hallway as I'm welcoming people in. And one of our older deacons meets me in the foyer. And he says... If I had known that they were showing up tonight, I would not have come. I was 26 years old. He's an 85-year-old World War II veteran. And I just felt the Lord saying, this is a moment to stand. And I said, then you need to go home. 
And if it is ever unacceptable for them, as you said, to be here, then I am no longer your pastor. And he didn't talk to me for six weeks. And I had other deacons come and talk to me about what I said to him. And it just showed me again, it's not something that's new, but how that sin is prevalent even today in churches. And it causes division. Poverty, wealth, racial issues, educational levels. Anything that you look at someone and think less of them because they don't meet your standard is causing an unnatural division in the body of Christ. Secondly, that's just one of four. It's bad because favoritism puts us in a position we do not deserve. There in chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Haven't you made distinctives among yourselves? That's the division. And then he says, And become judges with evil thoughts. He says, You put yourself in a place where you are judging people and you have no right to judge anyone. You're putting yourself as the judge over human beings that you have no right to do. There is only one judge, and it is God. And I, don't, I have this as a newsflash for you. You are not him. And so when you begin to look at people, and because of the way they look or the way they act, or, or certain elements about them that aren't contrary to the gospel, they're just different, and you look down upon them because of that, because of the nationality or because of the country that they come from, because of what they look like, you are setting yourself as a judge over someone that you have no right to judge. When I was growing up, I was the youngest in my family. Um, I have a brother that's five and a half years older than me. And when I got to be, I don't know if you've ever had this experience, maybe in your own life, or maybe you've experienced it with your kids or grandkids, that um, when I got to be like 13 or 14, I thought I had this whole thing figured out. I had everything figured out. And so there would be times that my mom and my, my dad would be in um, conversations, let's say, with my brother. Um, conversations that he had done something he shouldn't do or he was trying to make a decision he shouldn't make. And they would be in intense conversations. And I would walk into the room and I would say, well, you know what, this is what I would do. Because I got it figured out, right? Like I got, listen, listen, I know, y'all are having these, I know, but listen, just have you ever thought about and my dad had a line that he got from his mom. And it's not from just her. She's heard it from all over the place. But he would say, nobody made you judge and jury. Go back to your room. But that's all he had to say. He'd just look at me after that. And I'm heading back, right? And the point he made was, you're not in that position. You don't have that authority. And when we are showing favoritism, we're taking authority that we don't rightfully have. Third thing, showing favoritism is, creates division. It's a position that we don't deserve. And thirdly, it is inconsistent with the love and the character of God. He says it in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, I love you. God loves you. Know that. But didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Think about in 1 Corinthians when he says to them, some of you were these people that had no place, no position, and yet God saved you. Romans 2.11 says that God shows no partiality, that God shows no 
prejudice. So when we begin to judge other people by the outward appearance, we are inconsistent with the love of God. And then lastly, favoritism celebrates those that are oppressing us. It caters to those that are already in the position that they're trying to squelch out the faith. He says, isn't it the powerful that oppress you and drag you into court? Isn't it those that blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Aren't these the people, the people that you're talking about with status, the people that you're trying to impress, the people with wealth, the people with influence? Aren't these the people that are trying to put us down? Then why are we celebrating those instead of celebrating the Lord who has loved us? So how do we stop it? If it is a sinful hateful thing, if it is this thing that devours our own soul, how do we stop it? James gives us two answers here. And the first answer is, remember your place. Remember who you are. He tells us that in the next verses when he tells us that whole thing about the verse that I don't like. He says, listen, if you've obeyed the law that says love your neighbors yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you have showed any favoritism, you are sinning. And when you sin once, you sin all. And the entire law comes down upon you. What basically he's saying is you have no right to judge anyone else because you are no better than anyone else. Bill Hybels has a phrase. He has this quote that I've heard many times that says, you have never looked eye to eye with anybody that God loves less than he loves you. You've never locked eyes with anybody that God looks at in a place that is lower than you. So how in the world can you look at somebody and think of them lower than you? Remember your place. Remember that you, without Jesus Christ, are hopeless. That you have no hope because of the sin in your life. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The book of Isaiah tells us that our righteous acts, our good deeds, the best thing you've ever done in your life, the best act of charity, the best gift you've ever given, the most love you've ever ever shown your best act in your life is like a filthy rag before the holiness of God. And so before you start talking about your education or your place or how you pulled yourself up or how you got to where you are, uh, all of that, remember your place. You, without Christ, are desperately in need without hope. And it is level at the foot of the cross. The second thing that we must remember is we must remember our God. And this is how he starts the whole thing in, in chapter 2. He says that you can't have a faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Jesus Christ, our glory. You can't have a faith in him and not follow his example and who he is. And what he showed us is no one was below him serving them. He is almighty, righteous. He is Lord over the wealthy and the poor. He is Lord over black and yellow, red and white. He is Lord over everyone you have ever met. You know, there are sometimes people will say things like, we need to make Jesus Lord of the United States again. He has always been Lord. He will always be Lord. We can't do anything to make him that way. We must remember that that's who he is, mighty, high, exalted, glorious, Lord of all creation, King of kings, Lord of lords. But it tells us in Philippians 2 that that King of kings, Lord of lords, who is greater than anything we can imagine, that is more powerful than anything we can fathom, that King, that Lord, gave up that to come for us. And that our mind ought to be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, though he was equal with God, did not consider that equality something to be held on to, something to be grasped, something to be possessed, but... 
became a servant and even a servant unto death for us. And if you want to know, if you want to do a penetrating question in your life to see if this sin is there of favoritism, ask yourself the question, who in your life that you know would you not be willing to serve? Who would you not be willing to serve? And then ask the question, why? And when you're a follower of Christ, the excuse you can't give is they don't deserve it. Because we didn't either. At all. And he who was equal with God did not consider that equality with God something to be held on to, but gave it up to come for us. Who are you unwilling to serve? That may be a person. That may be a group. That may be a race. That may be a social status. And it may be rich. It may be poor. It may be black. It may be white. It may be Latino. It may be Asian. But if you are unwilling to serve fellow humans, then you've missed the message of Christ. Let's pray together.